I invite you to turn to Proverbs chapter 3, Proverbs chapter 3, and each week we provide an outline for the message, those who are here in person, those who are available as you came into the auditorium, those who are watching on live stream, there's an outline button next to or under your media player for that. You had a break, excuse me, you had a break uh, last week from our series in Proverbs as I was out of town and you were treated to the ministry of Dr. Tim Miller. I know it was a treat because it always is when Tim is with us, but also because I had opportunity to watch by live stream uh, down in, in Florida. The introduction to the book of Proverbs that we are in now goes through the first nine chapters. And those first nine chapters contain ten lectures from a father to a son, along with two interludes, and so that accounts for 12 total lessons in these first uh, nine chapters. We've seen three of the ten lessons, one of those two interludes. Today, we're going to look at lesson number four in the middle of chapter three. But before we do, let's bow and ask the Lord to help us as we look at His Word. Father, we thank You that we are here, or we thank You that we have the opportunity to participate by live stream. Now on this, the Lord's Day, to celebrate the fact that You are the living Lord, having risen from the grave on the first day of the week, and thus we call it the Lord's Day. Thank You for this grand privilege. And now, Lord, we thank You for the particular privilege of having Your Word before us and open so that we can learn of You, about You, and what You would have us to be for You from Scripture. So help us to be attentive. Help us to have open hearts to what you say. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, first of all, in the outline, I say this, that we are going to see why wisdom matters. Why wisdom matters. Have you ever referred to someone or heard another referred to as the salt of the earth? Of course, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount that his followers are the salt of the earth. But it's come to have a more general meaning applied to anyone who displays one of the important properties of salt, namely, it acts as a preservative. So anyone who contributes to the indispensable aspects of society is sometimes said to be a salt-of-the-earth person, someone who shows up for work faithfully, who pays their fair share of taxes who sacrifices to raise their kids, honors their marriage vows. These are given the salt of the earth moniker. I've observed that, interestingly. It's often people who could not describe themselves that way. People who are either not faithful employees, or they are not selfless parents, or they're not monogamous spouses. They sometimes remark about those who are approvingly. They're the salt of the earth. It says, if they want to do their own thing, but they are thankful that there are those who don't. Because if everyone was like themselves, they know things wouldn't work. Society would not hold together. They would not be able to live the self-centered, carefree way that they do if there weren't people holding down the fort elsewhere, so to speak. The responsible always pay the freight for the irresponsible. And the irresponsible are so glad we're there to do it. 
And that's because wisdom matters, and wisdom matters, I say in your outline, to everyone. Verse 13 of Proverbs 3, blessed are those who find wisdom, those who gain understanding. Now, a key word in that verse is the word those, because it's a translation of the Hebrew word Adam. You'll remember that at creation, the first human being was named that, Adam, which means man, mankind, human being, humanity. So the verse is saying, blessed are the human beings. Blessed is humanity who finds wisdom, humanity who gains understanding. Wisdom and understanding are available to everyone, every person, every human being. That's what we call God's common grace. Grace is God giving what is not deserved. In the case of common grace, He gives to humanity in general, commonly, the ability to live in accordance with His design. And so it's why non-Christian people can display salt-of-the-earth characteristics. Jesus spoke of common grace when He said in the Sermon on the Mount, your Father in heaven causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. He gives good in some measure to all people. Common grace. That's why we can and should then appreciate when non-Christians provide good cultural contributions. John Calvin said, The mind of man, though fallen and perverted from its wholeness, is nevertheless clothed and ornamented with God's excellent gifts. That's His common grace. His special grace is His gift of salvation, a changed heart that causes us to not only do good, but to do it for the right reason, namely, the love of God. Now, how do we gain that? How do we gain that that changed heart? That special grace, famously Ephesians 2.8 says, it's by grace, the special grace that you've been saved through faith. It's not from yourselves, it's a gift, a gift of grace, the gift of God. And so it's not automatic, it's certainly not automatic that people are going to have and exercise this wisdom, though in God's common grace it's available to all. It's not natural, it's not inherent to humanity, but those who, verse 13 says, find and gain it. But enough people do that that the world works for the most part, despite the many who freeload their way through. Life on earth is sustained because God maintains a critical mass of people who live according to wisdom. Whether that wisdom is acquired by common grace or special grace, whether Christian or non-Christian. We saw in the book of Revelation at length multiple chapters in that book about a time in the future called the Great Tribulation, a seven-year period where God's common grace is going to be removed and the restraints upon sin will be removed and you see that in effect hell breaks loose on earth as a result of that. But until that time, God maintains this critical mass of people who live according to wisdom and so things, things hold together. That doesn't mean that what the non-Christian and the Christian do are of equal value, as we're going to see. 
It's just that all people are capable of displaying wisdom, skillful living, because it's available to all. But if all the world was non-Christian people living according to common grace, it would not be sustainable because the motivation in that case is strictly natural and temporal. The wisdom that Proverbs speaks of is deeper and more valuable than fleeting rewards. And that's why verse 14 says, For she, that is true wisdom, True wisdom is more profitable than silver and yields better returns than gold. She is more precious than rubies. Nothing you desire can compare with her. One commentator has said that money can put food on the table, but not give laughter around that table. Money can buy a house, but wisdom makes a home. Money can buy a woman jewelry, but wisdom wins her heart. True wisdom yields both physical and spiritual benefits. So verse 16 says, Long life is in her right hand. In her left hand are riches and honor. You see that wisdom does indeed yield riches. It's not that wisdom yields less than money. It's rather that it provides more than money. The person who does not run after money and does not live for it doesn't have the anxiety that goes with it, which means peace of mind, better health, and overall, as verse 16 says, longer life. I've known rich people who are in many ways miserable people. We had one guy at our parent church decades ago, he's no longer there, who was a successful businessman in ways that had prospered him greatly. But he used to eat mailox like candy to help with his ulcer-like symptoms brought on by his worry. To this day, he has security cameras everywhere so he can be sure no one's taking advantage of him even when he's on vacation. You can be healthy in your bank account, but be a pauper in what really counts. Jesus said, one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And Jesus asked, what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? And going from the greater to the lesser, you could fill in other at the end of that verse. What does it profit one if they gain the whole world and lose their own family? What does it profit one if they gain the whole world and lose a purpose for living and lose hope? But wisdom creates an, industrious, an industriousness that works hard, that makes good decisions financially and otherwise, and so one has the money he needs, and that kind of life leads to honor in verse 16. People will see the fruit of wisdom in your life and admire it, even if grudgingly, since you're a Christian. They see the effect of that wisdom on your parenting, on your marriage, on your work ethic on your relationships in the community, and that wisdom is honored. Verse 17 says, wisdom's ways, her ways, are pleasant ways, and all her paths are peace. When you live in wisdom, life overall is better, sweeter than for those who don't. 
Godly wisdom is based on a relationship with the God of wisdom and all of the personal benefits that flow from it because you're avoiding bad company and bad decisions. And so your years and health are extended. You're making better financial decisions. And so you have security. And so you're gaining honor and respect. Life is more pleasant as you're avoiding the unnecessary misery that others experience. You have peace with God, and that leads to peace with others, an internal peace within yourself. Those great theologians, Boston, knew that money didn't bring peace of mind. They had a song called that, Peace of Mind. And they said, now you're climbing to the top of the company ladder. Hope it doesn't take too long. Can't you see there'll come a day when it won't matter? Come a day when you'll be gone. I understand about indecision, but I don't care if I get behind. People living in competition, all I want is to have my peace of mind, and then they say, take a look ahead. The rock group Boston knew what did not lead to peace of mind, but they didn't tell us what does, because they hadn't read the book of Proverbs and verse 18. She, wisdom, is a tree of life to those who take hold of her, those who hold her fast will be blessed. Now, verse 13 started with the word blessed, and now verse 18 ends this section with the very same word. That word blessed is a word that means to experience life as God intended it to be. And verse 18 is saying wisdom's benefits are not for this life only, but forever, because the tree of life is used in the Bible, including elsewhere in the book of Proverbs, for eternal life and immortality. We were introduced to the tree of life in the very first book of the Bible, in the Garden of Eden, in Genesis, where Adam, humanity, in the person of Adam, representing all of us, representing all of humanity, sought wisdom independent from God by reaching for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that is, for the ability to formulate his own laws of right and wrong, a right that belongs exclusively to God. And his, therefore, our rebellion resulted in exclusion from the tree of life. But humans regain that tree by humbling ourselves and receiving the words of Christ, which alone can impart that eternal life. That's why Peter said, to the Lord Jesus on one occasion, Lord, you have the words of eternal life. And the Bible says of Christ Jesus, he has become for us wisdom from God. So wisdom is, matters. Wisdom matters to everyone. It's available to everyone in God's common grace. But it's especially available to those who have a relationship with the God of wisdom, and that relationship comes only through the one who for us has become wisdom, Christ Jesus, the one who has the words of eternal life. And through Him, we partake again of the tree of life and have the benefit of not only life here and now, but immortality. Wisdom matters to every human being. And I say, 
It matters to God. Verse 19, by wisdom the Lord laid the earth's foundations. By understanding he set the heavens in place. By his knowledge the watery depths were divided and the clouds let drop the dew. God is the fountain of wisdom. So wisdom has existed as long as God has. Forever. And at creation then, God exhibited wisdom in his purposeful activity and his design for his world. We see God's wise handiwork in nature and we benefit from it presently. And so at the end of verse 20, when it says the clouds let, the dr- let drop the dew, that's in the present tense. It's, an, it's ongoing, of course. And we benefit from that ongoing wisdom of God. The west wind after sunset brings enough moisture of the sea with it that during the night it falls in rich dew. In Canaan's almost rainless summer, the land was dependent on this moisture for life, and so dew was more impressive then and there than to Westerners like us who, because we have more rainfall, we have less dependence on dew. But think about the wisdom of God that goes into just our hydrologic cycle. One preacher has said this, picture yourself as a farmer in the Near East, far from any lake or stream. A few wells keep the family and animals supplied with water, but if the crops are to grow and the family's to be fed from month to month, water has to come on the fields from another source. From where? Well, the sky. The sky? Water will come out of the clear blue sky? Well, not exactly. Water will have to be carried in the sky from the Mediterranean Sea over several hundred miles and then be poured out from the sky into the fields. Really? Carried? How much does it weigh? Well, if one inch of rain falls on one square mile of farmland during the night, that would be 27,878,400 cubic feet of water which is 206,300,160 gallons, which is 1,650,501,280 pounds of water. That's heavy. So how does it get up in the sky and stay up there if it's so heavy? Well, it gets up there by evaporation. Really? That's a nice word. What's it mean? It means that the water sort of stops being water for a while so it can go up and not down. Okay, I see. (laughs) Then how does it get down? Well, condensation happens. What's that? The water starts, starts becoming water again by gathering around little dust particles between a ten thousandth and a hundred thousandth centimeter wide. Well, that's pretty small. What about the salt? The Mediterranean Sea is salt water. That would kill the crops. So what about the salt? Well, the salt has to be taken out. So the sky picks up a billion pounds of water from the sea, takes out the salt, and then carries it for 300 miles and then dumps it on the farm. Well, it doesn't just dump it. If it dumped a billion pounds of water on the farm, then the wheat would be crushed. And so so the sky dribbles the billion pounds of water, down in little drops. 
and all that's going on when you see dew in the morning. When we create and plan with godly purpose, we are imitating the God who did so first. And when we admire God's ingenuity, which is all around us, it's transformative. It moves us, or should move us, from complaint to amazement. As you think about the hydrologic cycle, you think about dew, you think about rain, which we don't, we just take for granted. Or, <laughs> think about the snow. And think about how you've been thinking about the snow. Have you been thinking about it in amazement? Really, we should. Rather than grumble about the weather, why not marvel at the fact that no two snowflakes, you're blowing with your snowblower or shoveling manually, no two of those are alike. I have to remind myself of that. I had to purposely remind myself of that for a full two months every winter. And I admit it's not easy, and it's certainly not easy when I'm out there shoveling this stuff. And it definitely was not easy this past week when I came from Florida back to the stuff. But nonetheless, it's true. And we should be reminded that the God whose wisdom made that made you and is remaking you and me in Christ. Wisdom matters to all people. It matters to God, and I say, it matters to you. Beginning with verse 21, this fourth lesson on the character and beauty of wisdom is personalized. Verse 21 starts with, my son, just as the first lesson in chapter 1 and verse 8 did, and just as the second lesson did in chapter 2 and verse 1. And the third lesson did at the beginning of this chapter, chapter 3, that we saw two weeks ago, my son. In that first lesson, the father told the son to listen. In the second lesson, he said, you need to accept what you heard, that is, internalize it, make it your own. And in the third lesson, he tells the son to rehearse it because it's easy to forget, it's easy to displace with the other things that are calling for your attention. But in this lesson, he first says, give the value of wisdom. Understand the value of wisdom and why it matters to everyone and why it matters to God and so why it should matter now to you. So, verse 21, my son, do not let wisdom and understanding out of your sight preserve sound judgment and discretion. And then there are these benefits given in verses 22 to 26. But most of the benefits in those five verses have been given in the previous three lessons. Wisdom gives life in verse 22. But that was seen in chapter 3 and verse 2, that it will prolong your life many years. It'll be an ornament to grace around your neck, verse 22 says. But the first lesson and the third lesson, chapter 1 and verse 9, chapter 3 and verse 3, have already said that. The safety and sure-footedness of verse 23 
was already promised in chapter 1 and verse 33 and in chapter 2 and verse 8. The lack of fear that you will have if you follow wisdom in verses 24 and 25 was promised in the first uh, interlude in chapter 1 and verse 33. And the Lord's presence spoken of in verse 26 here was assured already in chapter 3 and verse 12. So all of this is being repeated here now. But something especially is being emphasized. What's being emphasized in verses 22 to 26, even though it's recounting things that have already been promised, what's being emphasized is the personal possession of wisdom and its benefits to the Son. Notice the personal pronouns throughout this passage, starting in verse 21. My son, do not let wisdom and understanding out of your sight. Verse 22, they will be life for you, an ornament to grace your neck. Then you will go your way, and your foot will not stumble. When you lie down, you will not be afraid. Your sleep will be sweet. Verse 26, the Lord will be at your side and will keep your foot from being snared. You see, child, says the father, though everyone benefits from wisdom, and though everyone displays some aspects of it in God's common grace, wisdom belongs to you personally. Because you personally belong to the God of wisdom. My son, I have told you, wisdom's available to everybody. And in God's common grace, it's displayed in some measure by most. But wisdom belongs to you. It belongs to you personally because you personally belong to the God of that wisdom. This God of wisdom has the capacity to train His attention fully every moment of every day upon you, dear child. And when you go into the world and you look at the world, you need to remember, child, the world is borrowing from what you have been given because you have access to the Lord's wisdom, you have something that others do not. You are a child of privilege. You have a luxury that others do not. God has smiled on you by placing you in a Christian home. Parents, we've got to teach our kids that. You are blessed. You are privileged. You've got something that everybody else don't have. And to the extent that they mimic it or imitate it at all, they're borrowing from what God has given to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 in your New Testament. The Bible talks about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. The whole chapter is about that. And the question that had come up for the church in Corinth 
after in Acts chapter 18, the Apostle Paul had gone to the city of Corinth and had preached the gospel, and thankfully people were converted, but now you had situations where you had spiritually mixed homes. You had some who had come to Christ, and then you had a spouse who perhaps had not. And one of the questions addressed then in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is whether or not a believing spouse should stay married to an unbelieving spouse. Since we're spiritually now a mismatch, should we go our separate ways? Paul says no. If the unbelieving spouse is willing to stay, you stay. And he says this, the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. And then it has this curious phrase, otherwise your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Your children are holy? Your children aren't saved simply because they're born into a saved home. God has no grandchildren. God has only children who are born again into his family and then adopted. So in what sense are these children holy? Well, remember, holy means set apart. Holy means different. As Brother Tim said last week from 1 Peter chapter 3, when you live a Christian life, you are sometimes often going to be considered weird. A more positive way to put that is you're privileged. These children are privileged. The child who has but one believing parent is privileged. And the child of two believing parents who love Jesus, who model before that child that this is the way life is supposed to go, that this is the way life is to be lived, that child is amazingly privileged. And so parents live and talk like it's a privilege, like it's a privilege to belong to the Lord and to live for the Lord and to be part of the community of the Lord's people. The first 26 verses of chapter 3 tell us why wisdom matters to everyone, to God Himself and to the Christian personally. And now the remaining nine verses tell us this, not why wisdom matters, but what wisdom creates. The distinctive privilege of wisdom creates a distinctive culture around it. As one preacher has said, it creates a culture of life amid a culture of death. Wisdom creates three things quickly. It creates generosity. Verse 27, do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it's in your power to act. Do not say to your neighbor, come back tomorrow and I'll give it to you when you already have it with you. Wisdom Exercised in one's life will create margin. Margin in time, margin in money, margin in emotional capital. You see, because you're not fretting, you're not fearing, you don't have the anxiety, and so you have the emotional capital to now expend it to other people. Because you're making wise decisions, you have a little bit of extra to help other people. You have extra time. You have extra money. And those who are blessed in those ways use those blessings for others, and thereby wisdom creates a culture of generosity. 
When verse 27 says, do not withhold generosity from who it is due, from who it is due is literally in Hebrew, from its owners. Do not withhold generosity from its owners. Say what? The Bible is saying that if you have good that you can do for somebody, though legally you own it, morally they own it. Now, because you legally own it, thankfully no one can come into your house legally and lay claim to your stuff. The government cannot force you to be generous, though income redistribution via taxation makes the attempt. Nobody can come to you and say, I own your possessions. To that person, God says, you shall not steal. But to us, he says, you shall not withhold. One has said, we sin against one another not only by the bad things we do, but by the beautiful things we withhold. Withheld love is life-depleting sin. It falls woefully short of the Christian ethic to say, I'm not doing anyone any harm. And that's because Christians live by the golden rule, not the silver rule. I wrote about that in this week's Church Matters blog on positive holiness. Jesus gave us the golden rule in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, do to others what you would have them do to you. But hundreds of years before Jesus gave the golden rule, Confucius gave what's sometimes called the silver rule. Do not do to others what you would not want them to do to you. And many misunderstand these to be the same thing that makes Jesus, in effect, a plagiarist. But in fact, the golden and silver rules are quite different. And that's because one can fulfill Confucius's dictum by doing nothing, by doing no harm. But Jesus requires more than simple restraint. He demands we affirmatively act on behalf of others. In the culture of life that wisdom creates, it results in generosity, and it creates safety. Verse 29, do not plot harm against your neighbor who lives trustfully near you. Do not accuse anyone for no reason when they have done you no harm. One commentator says, trust is the glue that holds community together. What do a husband and wife, for example, need most from each other? Trust. The Lord calls us to trust Him unreservedly in verse 5 of this chapter because trust is the platform on which a real relationship can happen. We all know what it is like to trust someone and then he or she turns against us. It's painful because trust is so profound. What then does wisdom say to us here? Negatively, do not be a fault-finding, critical person ready to pounce on some well-meaning individual with a gotcha. That's a culture of death. But heaven has come down to us through Christ. He defended us when we deserved the opposite. So let's stick up for innocent neighbors. That is wisdom, creating a culture of safety in a world of attack. This is the life-giving culture that we should see in the community of faith. Such that the church is, what you've heard me say often over the years, a place where it is safe to be a sinner. Wisdom creates generosity, safety, and finally, conviction. And I say it creates conviction because verse 31 says, do not envy the violent or choose any of their ways. 
A young person might be tempted to be jealous of the bully on the playground who, as a result of his intimidation, has an entourage around him. He appears popular. And then as you go along in life, you see it later as the pushy get the promotion and they rise to the top of the company, sometimes to the top of a nation. But one who sees the gracious privilege he's been given by God has strong conviction that produces a contentment that says, no, I'm good. I'm more than good. I'm blessed. And I need not chase after manufactured popularity. Verse 32 says, For the Lord detests the perverse, but takes the upright into his confidence. When it says into his confidence, it means he takes them into an intimate relationship with him. And because I have that, I need no more. And certainly I don't need to walk in the paths of those who live contrary to God's wisdom. Verse 33, the Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but He blesses the home of the righteous. He mocks proud mockers, but shows favor to the humble and oppressed. The wise inherit honor, fools get only shame. So ask yourself, who do you see as wise and who do you see as fools? If you see the humble as suckers, that always finish last, you need to remember, friends, Jesus says the last will be first. But if you see the humble as suckers, you'll lack the conviction and the contentment to resist the apparent success of the wicked. But if you see the humble as God does, people who are not confident in themselves, but who have unreserved confidence in the Lord, people who boast, but they boast in the Lord, then you'll choose as the wise do. You'll choose the foolishness of the cross that confounds the wisdom of the world. You'll choose the one who humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. You'll choose the people who have made that choice and love the community that it has created. Here's your take-home truth. Wisdom makes the world work as it should as it was designed to be. Let's bow before the Lord. Father, we thank you again for allowing us to meet, allowing us to have your word open before us. Thank you for instructing us from this book of wisdom. Lord, help me, help all of us to understand that this book is not just a list of rules and instructions because we need to be empowered to follow them by your Holy Spirit. We need to be motivated to follow them by your Holy Spirit. And all of that only comes as we give ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for us. So help us to see wisdom as the privilege that belongs to those who belong to the God of wisdom. And help us to cherish it and model it and love it show it to the next generation and may they be raised as well with the sense of godly gracious privilege that you have afforded them and then live accordingly and we pray this in the name of jesus amen let's stand together now for a closing song